I literally wrote a book on the worst part of my life. So ask away. We're good. <laughs> yeah. So, and, um, so, I mean, I was looking at it and, um, uh, online and the, I mean, I, you're a cancer survivor, I mean, that's clear from the title. Yeah. And, um, I'm curious, like what, I don't know what, what kind of inspired the book and what is the tie into musical theater? Oh my God, so many ties into musical theater. We'll we'll get to that second. Um because <laughs> that's a much longer conversation. Um, the inspo for the book was like, you know, I mean, cancer's fucked up. It's a weird kind of experience that you have, right? And like you come out on the other side and you're like, oh no, this isn't what I thought it would be. And it's very isolating. You feel very alone. And so you're trying to like rebuild and like figure out what's going on in every facet of your life. And um, it wasn't until I actually met someone who had recently been told that they were cancer free. At this point, I was like three ish years out mm-hmm. and uh, they kind of articulated the same kind of experience. And I was like, oh, this isn't abnormal. So I called a couple other people that I knew and asked them if they had the same experience. And every single one of them kind of gave me the same story. And I was like, I have never heard this before. So I decided to write a book about it. And uh just to clarify that cuz i as someone who hasn't had cancer i uh, i'm curious a little bit more about what you mean by some of that like um is it just n- no one knows what you're going through and so that leads to the isolation or feeling alone or is it because people treat you differently or what what kind of it actually leads to that kind of both but it okay. has it's more to do with you right like yes mm. people don't really understand what you're going through sure of course they don't because they're right. not they're not hooked up to like a pole of poison you know like mm-hmm. they, they, how would they ever know um and that's not their fault and you know the way that they treat you absolutely different like they walk on eggshells and they want to make sure yeah. that every everything is like pretty and perfect and like don't talk about your feelings because you know mm. that might trigger something and so they try to create this like utopia for you which is appreciated and like thank you like i didn't allow crying in my room like it just wasn't a thing i wanted everyone to be like happy and visit and do the things um but what i really mean is you know i think there is this very like disnified in a way like exit from cancer that people see in tv and film and it's like oh my god you're cancer free and everyone's like yay oh my god i get my (laughs) life back and cake and champagne and Mm -hmm. like you like we had that moment there was that moment you know like i definitely like was sitting at my desk in my apartment and i had a a good cry of release big big ugly release cry because my oncologist called me to tell me Mm. um at that point i hadn't told anyone what was going on it was my family and my closest friends and so i put it on facebook and was like hey like we're good this is what's been going on for the last year no one noticed you know that's kind of like the main character energy that we Mm. all live in where we think people are watching us but they're not and uh you know it, it it's rebuilding like the career I had the momentum I had before was gone some of the friends I had before were gone the boyfriend I had before was gone and the way people view you is like oh you know oh you survived cancer oh congratulations are you okay and it's like oh I don't want no please stop um you know and it just is really an identity 
thing. You know, mm. like ev everyone around you annoys the shit out of you because you've just been through something catastrophic and it's shell shock. You're like back to like not having this structure of appointments and doctors and nurses and and drugs and, and mm. steroids and meal regimens and workout regimens and like things that are so rigid and you're just kind of like shot out of a cannon into like you're cancer free. Yay. And like, yeah. yes, you, you have follow up appointments and whatnot, but you're free falling like everything is gone and you have to figure it all out again. Um, and that's kind of what I'm talking about, like the isolating part, because like no one knows what you're going through during cancer, of course. But there's I think this like subconscious assumption that once you're out, people are like, oh, my God, celebration every day because you're alive. And like, sure. Yeah. But yeah. It's, it's, a lot more complicated than that. I'm starting to understand some of the parallels to musical theater as you talk. I'm starting to, <laughs> I'm hearing there's little bits in there. I'm like, okay, okay. Well, the, I'm, cur the book I'm curious. Makes more sense. I'm curious what you're hearing because I know what my ties in are, but I would love to hear from you what you think they are. Oh, well, <clears throat> um, uh, I think isolation and feeling alone is something that many people go through as actors um some people are i don't know some some people I, I get the impression are are just maybe really good socially and like they'll always have a group of friends around them but i also feel like when you move around and travel as an actor like that eventually there's going to be those moments where you're just kind of feel disconnected from the people around you and um Hard to say specifically, but I've had a few moments where, um, you know, sort of like one door closes and you move into a new chapter of your life and uh, it just feels like you, yeah, the sort of lack of direction. Um, and, and to your point, the, um, of course, let me be clear. I'm not trying to make it sound like I had it like, <laughs> oh, it was like, I had it so bad. Um but uh, no, just uh, in the industry, I could also see how um, like when when you go through these sort of chapters in your life there, it, yeah, the the main character energy, like no one cares, you know, it's just kind of it just kind of happens and you're out blowing in the wind kind of a thing. Um, so I, I just based on these first couple minutes, I can I can of you talking about it, I can I could imagine how. There would be a connection. I'm curious, though, like, was it just uh... so th that's what inspired the book? And then but when did you actually decide, like, I want to write I want to actually make the book? Like, why why did you actually want to share the story? And particularly as a book? Of course, Um, I want to rewind real quick to a couple things you said first. Before oh, sure. We get to that. But we, but we will get to that. Um, I actually those some of those parallels, I don't think I consciously made until right now hmm. um and and you're right i mean there are it, that that comparison right there is absolutely true you know you do have isolating moments i was very fortunate to have a very solid core of friends that like were a constant throughout no matter where i was in the country hmm. i was fortunate enough to work with some of them so that kind of heightened that experience um but yeah i mean absolutely a parallel there you know you do have that isolation you do have that whole like main character energy and then something happens and you realize like no one's watching you and no one cares and no one's paying attention and that can be a good thing cuz that gives you so much space to screw up and like and fuck up and fail and and fix it and go back and like do it again you know like no one cares and like in 6 months no one's going to remember like who cares 
um, you know, like, I think we kind of get into our heads that like, there's the spotlight on us all the time. And, you know, that's good energy to have at some points. Sure. But like, you know, there's a serve and a limit to that as well, where it's like, you know, you can walk into an audition room, like spotlight on you and and you're the star of the show. And that's great right. because that might land you a job. But then when you have moments where you're like, wait, none of my people are texting me and I feel alone here in Nebraska doing <clears throat> Little Shop of yeah. Horrors for two fifty a week. You know, like it's, it's, yeah. I mean, I literally thank you for making that parallel because I would have never considered that before. Um, but you're right, 100%. Uh, the tie-in really for me to musical theater is that the experience of cancer is so heightened and ridiculous that I couldn't really find a reasonable way to convey what I was talking about without attaching it to a musical. So each chapter mm. of the book is a different musical that I felt fit with what was going on. And, you know, Little Shop is the very first one because we named my tumor, tumor Seymour when I was in Reno doing hairspray and um, you know, my friend Brian met me at a bar and I knew this thing was going on. I told him about it and I made a joke about like, maybe it's one of those things that like grows hair and teeth. It's like a growth or something. And he was like, well, I mean, you're going to have to name it. And in the bar, little shop was playing on the TV and I was like, and we both were like Seymour. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So, yeah, I mean, it was really more like the heightened reality and suspension of belief kind of, vehicle you know writing it in my head i was very thinking very much like rob ashford chicago movie musical where like everything's going along and it's totally normal and then like at the turn of a dime when something big happens like all of a sudden you know velma kelly walks in and you're yeah. like what, what the fuck is ha- like who is this why are you in a flapper dress um you know and it very much was that kind of heightened reality thing the reason why I chose a book is because if I have to see one more one man show, I'm going to fucking like jump off a building somewhere. I can't do it. Mm. Um, there's I, like, it's just not, it was not the thing that spoke to me. I didn't want to throw myself into the wolves with that kind of uh, thing. It's not for me. I've seen so many of them. I can't do it anymore. I cannot pretend I enjoyed myself one more time. It's just not a thing that I really <laughs> want to like create. Um, you know, we are adapting it into a TV musical for uh, like episodic, very much like Crazy Ex Girlfriend, which I'm super excited about. Mm. Um, but I just didn't see it as like a cabaret or a concert. It's too uh, in my head the way that I want it. It's too large for that kind of environment. It really is. It needs it needs a camera. Well, and that would be interesting too because, um, you know, it makes me think about uh, like. Um, have you heard of Meow Wolf? No. Uh, it is an art. How do I describe it? <laughs> imagine a imagine a very small Disneyland, but instead of castles and Main Street USA, every corner is some trippy thing like a neon forest, or suddenly you're in a house and you open the washing machine and there's a slide and you go down the slide. So basically it's this art installation that you it's immersive. And one way it was, I've been to it. They're, they're, they're becoming popular and popping up around the country, mm-hmm. but it started in Santa Fe. And one way it was described was a way that you could feel like you're on drugs without actually taking drugs. <laughs> and um, it, the the only reason I thought of that is because it's it's a good example of how like, you know, you can use art or storytelling to yeah, make like 
like for example, I I'm not into drugs, but that was it's a pretty cool art uh, installation. And similarly, like you know, that could be you know using music could be a real maybe a better way to tell your story to your point, um, especially because you said what you said earlier is that you know the the way people like me see it in movies and stuff is not necessarily fully accurate to what what the experience is like and so yeah. it could it could like you know could uh it could show people like me you know what 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 it's really yeah. like well and and even without it being on screen yet i mean the the things i've heard from people who have read it you know specifically medical care providers or those who have been through cancer like just kind of blew the conversation top off of you know bedside manner was one thing that nurses and other like medical professionals who have read it got back to me about they were like i never considered this like when you're in the hospital you're a patient that's it like anything that happened to you prior to that moment doesn't matter um my doctor actually told me that at one point like not in those words but you know in, in so many of them kind of was like you're a patient now and everything else in your life doesn't matter um, you know, and so it's a very dehumanizing experience. And so in this book, when I talk about, you know, the fact that I drank my way through chemo or yeah, through chemo to cope, you know, like that's not a thing that people talk about. And mm-hmm. when I talk about like, you know, hooking up and having sex during that period of time too, like that's not a thing that people associate with cancer patients. It's not really a good idea, like medically speaking to do, but like I did it cause I sure wanted to feel pretty again. Mm-hmm. Uh, cause you know, I looked like a, a tortoise, like it, it just wasn't a cute moment. So like any, any way that I could feel normal, I went and I did it times a hundred, you know, like I went on vacations and got a parasite swimming in the ocean. Cause I had absolutely no immune system. And like that mm. almost killed me. And like, wow. know, I, I gave myself a lot of complications <laughs> because I was raging so hard and trying to be normal. Um, you know, and so like you know again like the alcohol sex drugs like i didn't do like drugs drugs but like you know chemo and all the prophylaxis they put on you and the antibiotics and all the hormones and the steroids and shit that they put you on just keep you level Mm. fuck with your head like chemo brain is a thing that is talked about within that community and it's real it's like this foggy confusion of uh, all the time um there's a story i think that got cut from the book uh that i tell where I really, you get weird food cravings when you have cancer. Like the chemo makes you insane. It's like, it's like being pregnant in a sense. Like I okay. wanted, I went through a phase of like, like spicy fried chicken and green apples. Like who the fuck knows why I wanted hmm. that combination. And then okay. there was like the sushi and ice cream phase. And then it was like, you know, I went through a halal phase, which is kind of a phase I'm always in because I could, I would. Halal's pretty good. I would die for halal. <laughs> yeah. Um. But I really wanted some, and there was like one really good place that I knew of. And so I got on the train. I was living up in the in Washington Heights at the time. I took the train down. I got the halal. I got back on the train. I swear to God, I got on an, a C train and somehow ended up in the Bronx. And so then I had to like figure out where I was, how I got there, get like exit the train, go up to the other side of the platform, get on a downtown train. Mm-hmm go to where I was going, transfer again. And it just took like three or four hours to get this fucking halal because my brain was not functioning enough to read signs of like where I was going. It was really scary. Sure. I called I called my mom like crying, like, I don't know what happened. I thought I got on a C train. Um, it wasn't good. <laughs> wow. Um, uh, 
I, I have a totally different question, like just random, random question um, no, go for it. about the, uh, about the book. Um, like what, in, in terms of, uh, aside from the, the content of the book, what, like, what, what did you do to actually make the book? Like, did you just write, did, was it write it? How did you get it in Barnes and Noble? Okay. So, uh, this is a multi-part answer, obviously. Sure, um, yeah. I actually wrote the original copy, the or- original manuscript about six, seven years ago. Um, it took me a year to write. I had a desk job at the time and I was essentially paid to write the book because like the mm-hmm. desk job was like low stakes. And so I could just sit there when I wasn't doing anything and write. Mm. And it became this like massive brain dump where I was just like in this computer screen and it started with like once upon a time I was born in 1986 and then eventually like all that crap got cut out and all the commentary and it just became about this like one year period of my life. And I think at one point I had like 120 or 130,000 words that I had put into like this cloud writing thing and I had to go through and like, you know, kill your babies as they say in writing world like you have to redline everything and just be like this doesn't fit this doesn't make sense the com- the conversation is cancer and being a survivor and so anything that happened to me prior to that is not relevant and so i had to go through and cut everything out and so then it became uh something else and then i was like well i want this to like reflect the time period and what i was doing at that time which was musical theater and so i was like mm-hmm. cool and because for legal purposes, um, I didn't want to use anyone's real name. So I just went in and changed everyone's name to different musical theater characters. And then oh, I, cool. I I kind of like built out the coloring around all of that after I did that. So like, you know, you know, the bad guy is like Beetle from Sweeney Todd or like a certain nurse is like, you know, Mame. And, <laughs> you know, like it just goes through different musicals and, and each yeah. chapter is different. And if I meet you in chapter one and you stick with me through the end, that musical theater character transitions through every single other musical so in you know in like a chicago chapter you have like grizabella from cats and like it's just this crazy like and my thought for that aside of like rob ashford like the lens of rob ashford was also big fish the film so Mm -hmm. like at the at the end when all of the characters from these stories in his life come to his funeral and they're all standing there and Edward Norton is like, oh, these are all the characters from everything. Like, oh my fuck. Like, that's how I wanted it to end. And uh, that's kind of the route that I went with that. Well, and then, but once you, once you wrote it, what was the process to getting it actually published and all that? Right. So I self-published it on Amazon like six years ago and that was a fucking Mm. mess. It was a mess, you know, like I didn't see the value in spending money on it. I like Mm -hmm. had my friends copy edit it and then like they did that, but it wasn't very good. And it was, and that was my fault because I wasn't saving it enough and like some things got undone and it was just a hot mess of a book. Mm -hmm. And I was so ashamed of it. And I had so many like negative feelings around it that I kind of buried it and uh, didn't do much with it after I did like a certain amount of like, as much free promo as I could get. Like I had a, I had a great new segment up in Albany while I was doing ragtime up there with one of their news anchors who, whose podcast I just interviewed for recently. And then I had uh, the opportunity to be one of the vendors at the glimmer glass festival in upstate New York. And I went up there and I set up a little, a little table and I was selling my book mm. and like had a little IV pole and things. It was very cute. And we had, <laughs> we had a very good, time, very good time with that. Got to watch some free opera. It was wonderful. Um, but after that, I just kind of let it die. 
And then mm. this this year, which was the last 12 months have just been some of the most wild of my life. Um, I don't want to dwell on this, but I booked the national tour of Chicago and then I was replaced at the last minute. But before that happened and before I was made aware that that was happening by a friend, God bless, um, I decided that I was going to reissue the book for my 10-year cancer survivor anniversary. And it was going to be like this big you know, to do yeah. because like I'm alive and yeah. <laughs> much to some people's chagrin, um, you know, so I decided to do that. And so I sought out a publisher and uh, the woman I work for recommended someone to me that she knew. And so I, I talked to them and they were like, great, love it and took it and okay. signed it through and got it published. And it's on Walmart and Barnes and Noble and Waterstones, if you're in the UK, and like a ton of other, I think it's like 30 re- retailers at this point. Well, I, I've seen a lot of stuff online, um, like particularly in the world of entrepreneurship, uh, and a lot of in terms of books, and a lot of people are turning towards self publishing. Like it sounds like you first, that, that was the first way you went about it. Yeah. Now that you've kind of done both, um, like in in hindsight like if you were to write another book what's the path you think you would take i would absolutely not self-publish at all okay and is Um, that just because of the reach you got or why um self-publishing you get one platform you know you get amazon and like maybe you can find other platforms to self-publish on maybe you know uh and what's that going to cost if you have to like subscribe to something to self-publish on some platform, you know, like I, I don't really know. Amazon was the only place that I really put it up and self-published on. Um, I had a lot of theft from Amazon. Um, I had, there's a fucking bookstore in Connecticut that's selling my book with a totally different, it's like the Edward Miskey story or something, something bullshit what? like that. Weird. Yeah. And I think that Amazon kind of like, for whatever reason that happened a lot when I self-published, um, you know, and on top of that, like, you know, Amazon, any fucking buddy can put a book on Amazon, you know, right. and then it's the onus is on you to kind of like do the promo and do the ads and do the push and do the content and everything else. Not that I also don't have to do that now, but I get to point to Barnes and Noble, which has a special place in my heart in the first place. Um, And I get to say I'm in Walmart and I get to say that I'm on Indigo and Booktopia and Waterstones and all of these other big companies and that's just it's a validation it's a, it's like to me without having it it feels like having a blue check like i did it right and have you seen the between those two i don't know sample sizes is has it been a lot more sales or is it like how how like in terms of people who have been able to get buy your book and and hear your story have you been able to reach more people yeah. now with with a publisher Yeah. I mean, so this is a two-part question. So, or answer rather. So yes, I have. Um, The way that it works is that you're paid quarterly. So the first check that I got was from October Mm -hmm. when the book first went out. Mm -hmm. Um, And so then like February is November, March is December and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. 
Um, the other part of this, and and like October, I made more money in that month with book sales than I did in like I don't know two years of book sales for the for the last one. You know, it still okay. wasn't a ton. Yeah. Of, it still wasn't a ton of money, but metrics wise, it was like like money wise, it was more. Yeah. Um, because you have more platforms, you have more reach. You know, if you're doing yeah. your job on the other end. The other part of this, and I think this is true for absolutely anyone, and I will die on this hill, hire a publicist. Mm -hmm. um, my publisher suggested one to me, and I I went with her, and she's been great. Uh, I have a couple of things I can't really say just yet that are coming up that I'm really excited about. Okay, uh, We're kind of working out the final details on that, but we have some pretty big placements coming, and um, <laughs> uh, I would not I would not not do that ever again you know like i have other projects that are coming up i'm already shopping for publicists for that because like this is it's not her realm like she's specific to books and other things and um you know i'm looking for someone i already have someone for tv when we transition this book into a mm -hmm. pilot and um you know i just i cannot stress enough if you are doing something hire a publicist you're it's it will be so much easier to have a life for whatever you're doing if you have one and a good one um, then it will be like just doing social media posts because like social media is so saturated, like building a community around so your own social media takes time and it takes a lot of work and that's totally fine. Do those things, but also hire a publicist. And so what will they like, what kind of stuff does this person do for you? Like what, what, what avenues are they so publicists doing? basically make their money by relationships that they've built with other larger platforms right like insider mm -hmm. deadline you know about and a name periodical that you read playbill etc <laughs> so then what this person does is they take your project they have a consultation with you uh you know you pay them whatever they're asking whether it's in one lump sum or monthly or however they decide to do it is kind of you know neither here nor there but um you know they will have a conversation with you about what your your story is what the conversation is what the narrative is how you want it to be presented what's the voice that you're speaking in and then basically they will write or collaborate with you on pitches, which include like a, a grabby headline, a sub headline, and then the explanation of what you would want your story in their publication to be, mm. and then contact info. And so this person will write a bunch of these and send them out to different publications that are specifically publishing similar um, content or have in the past. And you just target the writers of those articles and you reach out to them and and in most cases these people will have relationships with them already that they can be like hey i got this story you know like would you be interested and um you know that's how the cookie crumbles and so far i already have a placement on um uh goodman project and i had my abc segment that i did for harrisburg and Oh my goodness what else is coming i guess the rest of it isn't out yet so i can't really say mm, no worries <laughs> and um, I Sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, so I mean, it's it's just so much easier because it's essentially like you're paying someone to do something that takes up a lot of time and energy sure. that you don't, then you don't have to do and you can focus on doing other things. Sure. Um, you know, like the podcast interviews, I've been doing like a digital book tour for the last couple months, um, you know, talking about my book and like that's something I get to do because I'm not spending time sending pitches out and sure. researching, researching like people to contact because I don't know them, you know. Yeah, my, my publicist does. So they do that. And speaking of digital books, um, have you what? What's the is if you know it? What's the the split between um or not split? What percentage of your your book sales have been like physical copies versus digital? 
Oh, I don't know, actually. <laughs> mm. Do you have I'm, any, I'm uh, sure, any guess? I'm sure that that's on my invoice from my publisher, but I mm. don't actually know. Okay. Um, um, and... I'd say it's, I mean, I, I'm optimistic. I would like to say it's 50-50. Yeah. Um, I love buying a physical hard copy. I just got Michael Kushner's book. I have a bunch of other people's books that are friends or that I've been referred to. Um, you know, I have this bookshelf that I bought after not having a bookshelf for 18 years of my life. And so I'm trying to fill it and I still have yeah. like two and a half shelves left to go. So if anyone has written a book, please let me know. I'll buy it. Um, well, do you have an audio version? I'm working on it. I've been working on it since December and I'm such an idiot. I thought like, oh, I'll crank this out in a week. No problem. It is so hard. Like voiceover is one thing. Audiobooks is a totally different animal. Like there's something about sitting in my little booth back here and being like reading words that I've written and not being able to read and like reading sentences that aren't there or like maybe I'm dyslexic. I don't know. But like it's so it's so weird like just going through and like reading and then being like that's not what that says having <laughs> to go back and re-edit and you know it's difficult it's taking me a lot of time and i i'm really busy with work and stuff so it's happening i'm i'm almost done i'm probably like two-thirds of the way done okay cool um, but it's it's gonna happen it's coming yeah i'd be i'd be really curious once you have that up like yeah what how are people accessing your book? Yeah. Are people getting physical copies? Are they getting digital copies? Or are they listening to it? Because I actually don't know right now what the no what a normal breakdown of that would be. Yeah, I don't um, either. I mean, but, I, um, I know for a fact that they're buying both. They're buying both digital and yeah. and phys and physical, but I, I don't know the percentage. I and audiobooks, I love an audiobook. And what I yeah. will typically do is I will buy the hard copy of the book and then I will also get the audiobook to listen to. And sometimes yeah. I'll read while I'm listening or one or the other, or you know, some books like the um what's the one? I just read one not too long ago. Where is it? I don't remember. Wait, oh no. I wish I knew. I wish I remembered. <laughs> but it was one that I was like, oh, fuck, I want to make notes in here. And then I also have 5 a.m. club, which I'm not done with that. I just like I started reading the first couple pages. I didn't get the audiobook for that. I started reading the first couple pages and I was like, stop. I need a highlighter immediately. And like I went back and I was like highlighting lines. Yeah. It's so good. It's such a good book. I don't think I know that one, but it sounds like some other ones I've read. I assume it's like a self-improvement type of in in a way, like, I mean, get up early, have a great day, like get stuff done, <laughs> that sort of stuff. Yeah, I mean, it's not that simple, but yes, yeah, that's a very simplified version of it. But yeah, I mean, it's it is it is like get up early and do all the things. But I, I'll tell you, the first twenty pages, the way that they're written, is just like it just get, it just drops so many like little pieces of gold that mm -hmm. are jaw dropping. I'm literally going to read one to you right now because it's in my literal Facebook bio. Because I read it and I was like, shut up. Um, Where is it? Right here. Your excuses are seducers. Your fears are liars. And your doubts are thieves. And yeah, I was like, great. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, where can I tattoo this on my body? <laughs> it, there, there's a there's a similar book called The Miracle Morning, I think. There, but yeah. although it's not quite as poetic as that. But um, it uh, yeah. it sounds like it probably centers around some similar, some similar things. Probably. 
Um, in, in the end, it's all the same. It's just yeah. how you're listening to it. You know, like right. how many how many voice teachers did I have until I found the one that could teach me how to sing a high C? Mm-hmm. You know, like I never sang anything above a G in my whole life. And I had like four or five voice teachers at this point. And then I found this one that said it in a way that I was like, oh, yeah. I get it. And like high C on my first day. You know, it wasn't something I built up to. It was just the language and the mechanics of it that made sense to me that I was like, oh, I mm-hmm. get it now. And so that's really what all these books are about. They're mostly the same. It's just how someone is articulating it that like maybe you get a little bit more out of it than you would have a different one and so on and so forth. Do you think you would write another book now that you've I'm done it? already writing two more. Oh, okay. So you like I'm it. so excited about it. You know, it, I was so resistant to this and I, I had this conversation the other day. I don't know how to introduce myself anymore because people are like, oh my God, like, what do you do? And mm-hmm. it used to just be like, oh, I'm an actor and like a couple other things. And like, since I'm not really pursuing acting much anymore, like outside of the scope of this book, because obviously I'm going to be in the pilot, um, either as myself or the hot doctor, uh, haven't decided yet. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it, it's it's gotten hard and I, I'm trying to get in the habit of introducing myself to people as an author. Um, because that's what I am now. I'm an author yeah. and a creator. Like those are the two things that I can kind of umbrella over the things that I do. And um, I have a couple books that are started. The one that I'm leading with now, I I can't talk about, but it is a great queer story that is based on a historical uh, pocket of time that happened. That is a I I'm related personally to this to this moment, um, and that is also going to be turned into a TV show, which I'm so excited about. It's going to be like that 1950s like one division kind of like heightened reality sitcom of the cool. 50s feel until it isn't. Okay. Uh, as you go careening into the sub stories, but um, I'm so excited about that one. So excited about that one. And then the other one is like another book uh, that's about like the bullshit things that I did while I was like a teenager in New York. And um, so with all these books and TV series, what, what uh, the, 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 the one that's currently on the table that you're currently focused on, what, where are you in the process of, like you're talking about you're going to get a pilot made first where like how how have how are you even approaching this whole thing so i am about halfway done with the script right now i've kind of been talking to some people that i'm interested in having be in it um i have my like my producing partner sarah that i work with um you know she she and i have a couple projects that are coming up soon uh one of which is a podcast uh, that you know, joining the ranks. Everyone has uh, a podcast. Everyone has a, it's personal brand building. Um, you know, so she she's going to be helping me with that. Um, she's so brilliant on like pitch decks and and producing and uh, all of the things. She's amazing. Sarah Seeds, look her up. She had a she had a series on Amazon that was called uh, Writing the D with Doctor Seeds, and it's now on a different platform. I can never remember the name of it. Um, but she's a fucking badass. Like, just absolutely love her. And we're going to be working together as soon as the script is done on that end. And then I am currently writing music that will be like parody parody stuff that will be inside of that uh, the show as well. And then I hope to be done with all of that by the end of this summer and then in pre-pro by fall. And so are you are you going to be self-producing this? Are you um, 
I mean, like, is this going to be be, like a, like a indie scale or is this you taking, you getting outside investors? How are you, how are you producing All of the above. We're going to approach it from an indie kind of conversation, but there will be people with deeper pockets that we're approaching because I'm not going to make this unless it's of the highest of quality. Um, You know, the publicist we've spoken to basically said that he won't take it on unless it is of the highest of quality. And so I'm looking at making this for anywhere between 50 and a hundred thousand dollars for the pilot. And, um, you know, it's going to be, it might even be more than that, to be honest, because like, you know, on the indie scale, that's a lot of money. Sure. Um, you know, Sarah did her, I think her series on Amazon for like $27,000. My friend Taylor did her series on uh, YouTube for 15. Like that's, that's real indie, but this is, this is like bridging a gap because it's going to have to be heightened reality. And so that means that there's more budget needed. Um, so if anyone wants to give me a hundred thousand dollars, feel right. free. <laughs> well, and then is uh But we we do have like direct access to like literary agents and distributors that we would be able to put this in front of and sell to pretty immediately. Um, you know, so that's kind of the conversation happening there. And I'm like, that's the scary part to me. Like creating this, not a problem. Like I yeah. have created so much shit in my life. Like, that's not the scary part. That's the easy part. Um, you know, it's getting the feet on the ground and the contracts done and and all the LLC set up and the business and the money and everything else. Like that's the part that's like, okay, I need to sit down and focus. <laughs> like no one talked to me. Well, and then would the goal be well, quick question. How how many episodes would the series be? Or I don't know. Would you it know, be like, open ended or would it be limited? Um I have another script that kind of follows this kind of idea too. It's not like not the idea of cancer, but what I'm about to say, this idea of like how season one from pilot that we would create and then hopefully get picked up and distributed and create the rest of the series from, which is typically how that works. um, You know, that would be my book. And then Mm -hmm. maybe season two would be a version of that. That's related to someone else. Uh, Okay. Gotcha. Um, And then season three, same thing. And, and forever until, you know, people, people get sick of me. Okay, so it it would be one season for the book, and then you're ready to keep it going if 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 yeah. it can. And yeah. so, would you? Because um, I I think about uh, in terms of the these logistics of producing, uh, these are things I think about a lot. Um, is the goal? Would the goal be self produce, um, pilot, and then? Because, you know, so let's say it's 100K, which is, you know, a lot of money for uh, basically everyone on Earth. Except <laughs> it's a lot of money. <laughs> but um, would you then be would you be then trying to sell that to like a network who would buy it and then pr- they would fund and produce the rest of the series? Yeah, typically that's how that's the goal, right? Like that's yeah. what everyone wants to do. Um, and because like, you know, there's a lot of, we have a lot of access to distributors and people who would be able to facilitate that. Like, mm. you know, that's the hope, you know, there's no guarantee, of course, like I, this pilot could get created and then I'm in the hole for a hundred thousand dollars, but that's the risk that everyone takes in the arts, right? Like right. every TV show that has ever been made has taken a financial risk to make something. Everyone who's ever put anything on a stage has taken a financial risk to make something. It becomes you know, and no one is really in this to make money, right? We're in it because this is what we have to do. This is what we want to do. And if money is attached to it, that is wonderful because I am the first person to tell you that I want to be fucking rich. Like that's what's going to happen. And, you know, that feels like an impossibility within the arts, but we see it happen all the time. And like, there's no reason why any one of us can't 
make that happen. It's just a level like what it comes down to really is getting out of this mindset that a hundred thousand dollars is a lot of money. It's not like maybe for you and I, it is because we haven't seen that or haven't, you know, we don't have immediate access to that, but in the grand scheme of things, it's nothing, you know, like a million dollars really in the grand scheme of things is nothing like, and that sucks. And I hate saying that, but it's just, you know, for, for the civilians on the street, like, yes, that feels like a lot of money. But when you look at what it can buy you these days, it's like, yeah, okay. Well, I right. guess p- part of my question is like, so there, there, there would be no plan to like you would, you would, um, there would be no plan to self-produce the whole series. It would just, it would just it in order because kind of what you're saying before, like, there's a certain uh, production quality level you want, or else you just won't do it. So that you have to do that route. You have to do that route of getting um, uh, someone else on the outside or a company rather to pick it up. Yeah, I mean that's the hope. Um, yeah. you know, the the truth of it is is that like with this book, I kind of snoozed on it for like a really long time. And that makes me sad because it is quite good and I am very proud of it. And I don't feel bad saying that. And I think that's another thing that a lot of people in the arts are afraid to do is say that like I made something that's really good and I like it and it is good. And because everyone's like, oh, you know, thanks so much, but blah, 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 it's garbage. Um and we have to stop doing that. Like people in the arts, like, you know, I was like this. I still am to a degree. I see people do this all the time where they create something and then they're like, oh yeah, I mean, it's okay. Like, no, own it. Just te- like it is. Yes. It's fine. It's great. Own it. You know, and, and not don't, don't apologize for making something because you think that like you're embarrassed by it for some reason. And I did that with my book the first time around. Um, you know, I, I really sat around and was like, oh, you know, like, it's okay. It's kind of, it's not that great. Even though other people were telling me it was great. I didn't believe it was. And, you know, now I have put the, the time and the money and the energy and the, the, you know, gumption, if you will, the moxie, uh, into making this happen. And I just don't see another way about it. Like I'm going to make this, I will have a hundred thousand dollar pilot. I will get this sold to another network and they will pick it up. Like it's, that's just what's happening. And, uh, I don't have a plan B, you know, like I, I will not produce the rest of the series. Someone else will do it with me. It'll be a project that we all do together. And I want to pull a team of people in. That's really fucking great. That believes in it. That can get this shit done with me. And, you know, and we'll make something great. And if that takes one year, if it takes five years, if it takes 10 years, I don't care. Like, this is what I want. And I believe in this so badly and so strongly. And like, the vision I have for it in my head is very clear. And that's one thing I will say I've never had before. There's mm-hmm. never been like a target at the end of the street that I'm like, yep, I'm going to go do that. Um, And I think artists kind of get in that space too, where we're flailing all over the place trying to do all the things and be all the creative while we're waiting for auditions to pull through and other opportunities to come our way. And I just think that hinders us. It hindered me for years. You know, I tried to do so many things <laughs> at the same time mm. and it just ended up hurting me, you know, cause I didn't have a focus. There was no, in my, like, you know, a funnel, if you will, um, of where point a led and how to get to point B. It was just a whole bunch of point A's. And that was like, okay, well, where do I go from to from here? And I was confused on what I was doing. And I was confused on the multitude of things that I was doing and what the end game was. 
But my thought was like, you know, they're bricks of a house. Like I, if I just keep creating and build all the bricks, it's blah, blah, blah. But like I was building bricks for like different houses. And so none of those houses were ever getting built. You yeah. Know, because it was just like a brick over here and then a brick over here and then a brick up here. And like there was no real plan. And so now with this book, you know, the book is written like the, the hard part's done, you know, like transferring it over to a script. Also a little hard, but not impossible because I already have a source material that I created, so I don't have to study it, Um, you know, and then writing the music, you know, like I have people I can work with that I'm going to be working with to kind of put a fine point on that. And then the next hard part is the money. But, you know, (laughs) how many Broadway shows are up right now that cost multitudes of millions of dollars? And the thing is, like, when those shows are over... Can you look at it again? Like, not really. You might have some B-roll and photos to look at, but like, no. (laughs) Oh, you just mean the fact that there's not, uh, aside from the archive, there's no footage out there to to hang on to. and, And just creating this pilot, I will have something that I can show people until the day I die. I Oh, yeah. It's the massive strength of doing it. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's going to be my calling card. You know, like I made this, this is the thing I did and I will be able to show someone in its totality and its entirety forever. Sure. Sure. Whether, whether it is on a Hulu or an HBO or just on my hard drive, you know, and you can't really do that with theater. It's harder to do with theater. Yeah. It's, it's a huge, it makes me sad because I'm so proud of some of the productions I've done before. And I can, the only thing I have to show for it is like a photo and my resume. And that makes me sad because the the energy and the love that I put into that just has kind of like disappeared into the ethos. It's something that I think will change a hundred percent. I don't know the timeline, but I do think it it's um it's primarily I've talked to a lot of people about this. Um it's primarily a logistical contract union thing. Oh, yeah. uh, that prevents every Broadway show from doing what Hamilton did and come from away did and Diana. a few others. Um, but eventually, you know, maybe in 20 years, I don't, I think it'll, it's in Broadway's best interest to do it sooner, but eventually that will change because it's, it's what you're saying. It's, um, it's, it's such an opportunity lost to not have, high quality theater recorded and it's not the same but i mean imagine uh, imagine we had a decent recording of the original production of you know name your name your favorite broadway show literally anything anything like (laughs) uh, being able to go back and see something from like the 1960s or the 1970s like yeah. Uh, at least having it now wouldn't like it wouldn't hurt the integrity of you know there there's different discussions to be had about like well you know Hamilton is currently mm-hmm. live like they're still you know producing it so there's a little bit of a uh, like oh is it okay to put something out there will it impact ticket sales it doesn't seem to have hurt Hamilton and here's here's the thing like Hamilton is not an anomaly anymore you know like yes they are still chugging along but the idea that doing a pro shot or even streaming a show is going to hurt ticket sales is bullshit. It's what, it's what the Broadway league wants you to believe so that they can have their way, you know, like 
it's, yeah, it's it's not true for any other art form. Like <clears throat> if you see live streams of concerts, typically if the concert is good, if it's a if it's a great performer, it make like if you saw a, a stream of let's say Beyonce because her shows are, you know, Insane. I have never been live, but I've seen them, and seeing them on video makes me want to go to one because it's exactly. like holy shit, like yes. that seems incredible on the flip side you have a show <laughs> like um what was it the diana the musical or something and like yeah. i didn't i didn't see it but i heard it was awful and it's like you know that's not the fault of recording it live like that would like that would be the fault but, of the show if it but here's, you know if people thing, see it and they think eh, i don't yeah but I'm here's, not the, see that. here's the thing with that though like was it a good show that's subjective like you know you you get to decide that on oh, your totally own. But because that show ran and closed quickly, there is still a digital copy of it that you can go watch oh, yeah. forever and make yeah. that decision on your own. And just from a producer standpoint, like I think about like the the hours that was at the Met, right? Like that ran for however long it was. Kelly O'Hara was um, uh, Renee Fleming, and and my friend Brandon was in it, and they put that in a movie theater. And in the first weekend, they made nearly a million dollars in three days. Why would a producer not want to do that? I always talk about there was this production of Little Shop. Little Shop is one of my favorite musicals, if not my favorite musical of all time. And there was a production of it in London. I don't remember where exactly. Maybe the Palladium. I don't remember. And uh, there was a drag queen as the plant. And it was like this newspapery, like pink hair, Audrey kind of like edgy version of it. And I was like, I saw the trailer. I was like, I'm getting on a plane. I'm going to London. I'm going to see this. But I couldn't afford it. And so would I have been willing to pay $50 to watch it online? I fucking would have. Yeah. And, you know, some kid in like Iowa who wants to come see yeah. Shuck, Shucked on Broadway and can't afford it. Right. Could pay 10, 15, 20, $25 online to watch it at any point. Now, whether that's a pro shot, whether that's a live stream, these producers from a business standpoint are shooting themselves in the foot because one in five shows does not recoup. They do not profit. And so having any kind of stream of income that you can make money from when the curtain is closed and the doors are locked, why would you not do that? It's not the producers. It's I not know the producers. It's not. I it's, know it's not. it's a it's a it's a logistical nightmare uh making an agreement with all the unions that are involved and uh it, someone is it's going to take baby steps cuz like can't like a few shows have done it but there is still no definitive recipe. I've I've talked to many producers about this and that cuz and and they are sick of, like they always are just like I know everyone is telling me this. Ever we can't like we're trying like but, it's but here's it's just question, a, it's a dated it's it's it, there are things about Broadway that are just dated. Well, Broadway never acts in its best in its best interest for whatever the fuck reason. But like, I mean, you have from Crazy to Riverside on Broadway now. They're live streaming. Yeah. It's a logistical nightmare. They fucking figured it out. Why can't we? Why can't anyone else be like, oh, oh, why is everyone else like, oh, it's a nightmare. We can't do it. Figure it the fuck out. Other shows have done it. And if that means SAG I has agree. to absorb equity because equity is flailing around and embarrassing itself at all times, then SAG should acquire equity because they don't know what the fuck they're doing anymore. They've lost the ability to navigate in the new space that we're in with live theater. They just have. Um, you know, I left the union. I'm done. I can't I can't do it anymore. I want no part of it. Like I'm giving money to a union that's not advocating for its body. They're just not. And I'm yeah. sure that I'm going to get some shit for it. But honestly, like it, it re read the things, read the governances, you know, like it's just a mess. 
and their focus is in the wrong place. They are jerking off the Broadway League because they're it's a producers union at this point. And yes, there are there are things that are stopping producers from doing what they want to do, the ones that are progressive in thinking <laughs> and forward thinking, but it has been done before. And so if it has been done before, it can be done again. So like stop whining and complaining, go do it. The whole like it's a logistical nightmare thing just to me and without knowing. So forgive me, I'm making a broad statement. Just sounds like you don't want to do the work to figure it out. Yeah, I don't. In 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 the, in talking to a few people about this, I don't think it's a willing. It's not an issue of are they willing to do the work? Because um, uh, I don't mean I don't mean the producers. I'm not talking about the yeah. Producers. No, it's but I do think just on the whole, it, it's like you know there is no there is no real separation between the business of Broadway and the business of any other business in that if there is too much of a log jam when it comes to innovation and you're falling behind, eventually someone else is going to come along and innovate and figure it out. So that that's, that's the point I'm making. I, I'm kind of agreeing with you too, where it's like, there are shows that have obviously done it. Like, you know, Hamilton is the, the most famous example because they got put it on Disney plus. So I'm not saying it's impossible, but I'm just saying they're, yeah, it, it will happen eventually. It will happen eventually because if people drag their feet too long on it, um, it's they're going to get left behind. And I think as far as the different parties involved, um, eventually they're going to they're they're going to realize that they all stand to benefit from it. You know, they're, they really do. Um, it's so I think it's a matter of time, but I, I don't know when that is. Um but well, I, I, I agree with all your points. And, you know, the other the only other thing that I would say about that is that the other great benefit of having something like Hamilton on Disney Plus is that even though it's still going on, we still are able to see the original Broadway cast, which, you know, which is a huge, really cool thing, because it, it's such a privilege to be, you know, like for us to live nearby where if we really want to see the original Broadway cast or something, we can, and almost no one really has that access. Right. And so like, when you think of it in terms of television, you know, like celebrities are made on television because it's, it's a common denominator. We all have access to it, you know, yeah, whether that's yeah. an actual TV and cable or streaming services. And so, excuse me, Um, you know, or TikTok or, or name a democratized platform in which you can create content to be made a famous or known or recognized person. And like, not that that's what I'm trying to say, but we don't really have Broadway stars in the same way that we used to. And so being able to boost up other artists and give them that kind of platform where, you know, they can be in an original cast that is recorded and live streamed or behind a paywall in some form where everyone makes more money and everyone gets a higher profile and everyone wins. What's confusing to me about the situation that, there, that we can point to circumstances where there was a massive influx of money for everyone involved. And like those situations are few and far between because not so many people have jumped on the bandwagon of wanting to do this. Excuse me. But you know, I just I I don't understand because the thought is always follow the money, go where the money is. But then you have all of these union components that are kind of shooting themselves in the foot because they're not taking the money. 
and they need the money. So yeah. like, do the do the thing that will make you the money. <laughs> well, yeah, it. I think it's it's pretty tough because I think uh, equity, for example, um, there's a lot of there's a lot of times where I think that they have policies that where the intention is to protect the members. So, you know, this is like a common thing that happens in life. Someone, someone has a belief or a policy or whatever, and they, and they have some, you know, obviously good intention like safety, but then in reality, it might cause issues. And for example, there were a lot of um, like with, some of the COVID protocols, there were a lot of theaters that were having a lot of issues and it wasn't necessary. Like it wasn't necessarily just like, Oh, they're, they don't care about COVID or something like that. But there were many, there were many logistical issues that came up that had a, had a, like there was less theater produced and like it, it's a difficult thing because I should have a, a a more clear example, but I just know that in talking with different people that um, there were there were multiple times, and actually there was a time in my own experience where certain things didn't happen uh, because there were rules that were based on theory and not reality. Yeah, and, well, and there, I'm, there's dozens of examples of that, and yeah. like honestly, I could talk about this all day because. Like, gets me fired up um it it upsets me to no end <laughs> well i was trying to do a I was trying to do a little um like small fundraiser thing i'd done in the past and it was just like a hole in the wall thing and i was trying to do the right thing and get like approval from equity like i had but it was small enough that it, no one would have cared and i i in hindsight it it, it you know it, it was more trouble than it was worth but um I remember they they sent me some of the rules. They're like, okay, COVID's happening. We have these rules. Uh, one of them was I had to hire. And keep in mind, this was going to be a show involving friends, four friends, people yeah. who all work in Times Square, who all are, you know, get, you know, they're probably running into COVID five times a day without masks and all that sort. Like that's the reality, but then I would have still been like responsible for anyone getting COVID. And it's like, well, I can't yeah, control any of these people who are like on the subway without a mask or they're working in a restaurant without a mask. And there was like, and then on top of that, it was like, I had to get PCR tests. I couldn't do rapid tests. And yeah. I also, uh, here's the thing that really made me go crazy. They wanted me to have a, a COVID safety officer. Mm -hmm. And I had no idea what that was. I was like, you know, is that something I can do myself? Do I just have to do, watch some videos? What, like, because uh, I, it was, a, it was such a small project that the budget was like nothing. And I was just like, I can't buy, I can't hire people for this. This was like a volunteer fundraiser thing. Uh, the person I emailed at Equity and I said, when I asked them, can I get more information about this COVID safety officer thing? They said, I don't know anything about that. I can't help you with that. That's so weird. I have the email. I have the email. It's such bullshit. I, and they then there was I... another thing where <clears throat> I was just, there was another thing that came up where I just said, 
hey, what do I, what do I, like, this is friends performing for friends. We just want to do this thing. I'm trying to do the right thing by running it by equity. What do I have yeah. to do to make this thing happen? We're trying, we're trying to raise money for a nonprofit. And the the final response I got was, um, I, I, I can't help you structure your show. Yeah. I mean, really, they, again, like they just they just don't do what's in their best interest and for the best interest of their of the body. And so it just it irks me to no end. Um, you know, and again, I could talk about this yeah. all day long. Um, I do have to go. Yeah, yeah, we can cut this. No, this is fine. We'll we'll not yeah. dwell I mean, too I would much love, on equity. I would love to do this. I would love to do this again when I have more time to kind yeah, of go no, down this rabbit hole because I love this rabbit hole. Yeah. Um, you know, but it's just like unfortunately it's just a conversation of us banging our heads against the wall because nothing's gonna change, you know, like unfortunately. And if it does, well, it'll take a very, very, very long time. I think I think I think things will change. Things if things are getting too bad, then they'll they'll change. They they can't be they can't for example, the person I was talking to, they might just be a bad apple who gets fired for they maybe they're sending that kind of shit to other people and eventually it's just gonna be like, Yeah, you are not representing this union anymore at all. Yeah. Uh, I, I, you know, the, the union, I, yeah, I think things will get better, but right now it's just kind of like, what? Like, yeah, don't we ultimately want to just make, make stuff? Do. Yes. And, and again, like hours of conversation around this. And yeah. I hope that we can yeah. do that sometime because this has been a lot of fun. Yeah. No, thanks for, thanks for being on. And, um, I don't think we said it earlier. So just so people know the title of the book is cancer musical theater and other chronic illnesses that is correct available at barnes and noble <laughs> and soon available via audio <laughs> one of these days yes. yeah one of these days cool well yeah thanks Thank for being on i enjoyed talking to you and hearing about all that and um um, I'm excited to see what happens uh as you yeah. start to work on this pilot as i as i live out my delusions <laughs> Yeah. Well, <laughs> not not delusions. <laughs> they're all no. you know, they'll be they're becoming reality. They are. Yeah. Sounds good. All right. Well, I'll talk to you later. All right. Thanks so much, John. Thanks.